Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Hertel-Fernandez, your host. Today, I'll be talking with Mark Steinberg, author of England's Great Transformation, Law, Labor, and the Industrial Revolution. His book explores how employers used England's master-servant laws to control the labor force. Mark Steinberg, welcome to the show. Thank you, and uh, thank you for the, all of your listeners uh, taking the time to listen to this. Um, I was wondering if we could begin the interview with you telling us a little more about yourself. How did you come to the field of sociology? What is your background? Sure. Uh, actually, I was an undergraduate history major. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I got a bachelor's and a, ma- a master's degree in history uh, from a school called uh, Johns Hopkins University. And as I was delving into history as a discipline, in which I was quite interested, I realized that there were larger frameworks, theories, and models that might be able to explain great sweeps of history and the consequences of action within history. And those models... uh, I found in a lot of social theory, and the more I thought about it, the more I began to think about how sociology can be used to do historical research. And I even did one paper as a sophomore um, in which I explicitly used some sociology, and I wasn't kicked out of the department, (laughs) so I thought, now this might be an actual possibility. So what would you say are your driving motivations for studying sociology? Sociology has always interested me because of the way it interrogates power and inequality in society. Obviously, there's a lot more to sociology than that. But what interested me as an undergraduate history major were structural inequalities. In particular, I was very much concerned with class and class conflict. And as I came to social theory and sociology, I realized that sociology had a great deal to say about uh, how class works and ultimately how all forms of social inequality work. And that's why I turned to sociology in my graduate career. Wonderful. Moving on to the book, uh, Why England and Why the Industrial Revolution? Uh, The initial answer is that as an undergraduate history major and as a master's degree student, I got very involved in reading about English history and what at the time was called the new social history. The new social history focused on everyday life, class differences, 
uh, conflict and social movements in a way that was different from the traditional political history and great figure history. And I was very much drawn to that, and some of the earliest work in new social history was done on England. Uh, in particular, I was very much taken by a book written by a famous British historian, E.P. Thompson, called The Making of the English Working Class. So I began to pursue the new social history, and in fact, my um, master's thesis was on the way in which middle-class families in Victorian England socialized their kids to take part in a middle-class life. Uh, but as I began to return again and again to Thompson's work on the making of the English working class, um, it seemed to me that this was fertile ground where I could connect the new social history uh, to sociology. That makes a great deal of sense. Uh, now, your approach when writing this book was to marry top-down and bottom-up analyses of power. Can you explain what that means in the context of your research? Sure. Um, let me circle back for just a second and say that um, in this particular book uh, actually found its origins in my previous research. Uh, and it shows you how research can lead you into trajectories that you don't expect. My first book uh, was also very much um, focused on class conflict in early 19th century England, a book called Fighting Words, whose subtitle I don't even remember. <laughs> and uh, in that book, I was very much interested in, in the ways in which language was used in class conflict. And I had two specific case studies that um, I investigated to understand how language is a sort of a class force and product. One was a group of classic industrial workers in cotton factories in the north of England. The second was a group of more traditional, what would be called outworkers, workers that worked in their own homes uh, in a kind of a more craft production process. And these particular workers were very much, in, were very much involved in centrally in the silk industry in England. They lived in a specific portion of London called Spitalfields. And uh, they faced the transformation of the silk industry, which had been a protected industry in a protected market, when Parliament, uh, which at the time was very much infatuated with Adam Smith and free markets, decided to remove all the protections. The Spitalfields weavers engaged in massive demonstrations and uh, at one point attempted a general strike. And during that general strike, what happened was that weavers would break into the houses of other weavers who weren't participating in the strike in the middle of the night and take knives to their silk looms, destroying everything that they had produced. I wanted to know a little bit more about the people who were prosecuted for these offenses, and so I went into the London Metropolitan Daily Court records looking for those people. 
And to my surprise, not only did I find those silk weavers being prosecuted for property destruction, but I saw dozens and dozens of weavers being prosecuted for not doing their work in a timely fashion. This was very surprising to me. I had no idea that employers could use the law to prosecute workers for not doing the work in at a, at a pace which they considered appropriate. And that led me into a much further investigation culminating in this book as to how uh, employers, capitalists generally, can use the law to coerce work out of workers. Top down and bottom up are um, two ways of thinking that I inherited from my um, wonderful mentor, Charles Tilly. Uh, and Tilly wants us to think about the ways in which people in the higher echelons of power can, in a variety of different ways, impress their vision of the world and how the world works on those below them. But also, he wants us to think about how power is very much a process on the ground and to understand how from the bottom up we can see power at work in the daily lives of people and how that ultimately reinforces power dynamics on the top. Yes. Um, can you talk about how and why you picked your three case studies? <laughs> yeah, I certainly can. Um, <clears throat> Anybody who's done historical work in archives knows that it can be a very frustrating experience. When I was doing my initial planning for this book, I went back into the parliamentary records and looked for those towns and areas where large numbers of workers were successfully prosecuted. And I went to England to visit those areas to try to find existing court records from this period that I study, the 1860s and 1870s. As it turns out, many of those court records no longer existed if they ever did. And so I was uh, forced into a position where I had to select those towns or areas where the records existed. Uh, I have, uh, at one point, I was sitting in the archives of one of the towns I studied, Hull, which is in the northern part of England. And I had been there for a number of days, and about midway through my um, review of the court records there, another young guy sat down on, at the same table where I was. There were only two of us in this archives. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and this went on for two days. And he kept um, getting... Uh, these enormous manuscripts, very ornate manuscripts retrieved from the archives. And I kept getting these huge court record volumes. And we kept looking at each other's uh, archival material. And so finally I asked him what, what he was doing in Hall, since we were the only two people at this table. He said, well, I'm studying the way Latin was used in town documents in the medieval era which is why he had these very elaborate scrolls. And I explained to him what I was doing with the court records. And I said, so why did you pick Hull? And he said, because they have a fabulous archives. <laughs> and he said, 
to me, why did you pick Hull? And I said, because they have a fabulous archives. It's not that either of us particularly wanted to be in Hull or thought it was an exemplary case, but that's where the documents were. Yes, um, I was curious about the kind of detective work that went into uh, getting a sense of these historical configurations of power, um, how you began to reconstruct that. Yeah, so in each of these three case studies, one of the dimensions of the case study that I pursue is to try to understand not only how the local court systems were run, who staffed them, the kinds of decisions that were rendered and under what circumstances, but also to understand the structure of power in towns more generally. That is, I wanted to know, for example, how magistrates, the equivalent of what we would call judges, were appointed in these systems. And that was usually done by members of a town or borough council. So what I had to do is try to reconstruct, or as you say, reconfigure the power relations in each of these towns. And that was done through three different sorts of sources. First was there is some secondary literature. Other historians have written about each of these towns to varying degrees. Some of it is in very old, dusty volumes that were produced in the 19th century. The second is that uh, for this kind of work, uh, town newspapers become a very valuable source because they're... Uh, always reporting on significant political events in the town, as well as um, court proceedings. And so those became very useful in helping me understand who the powerful actors were and how they were connected with one another. And then the court documents themselves gave me a sense of which people were most likely to serve on these local courts, the bench, as magistrates, and how often they were present in rendering decisions. So it was a combination through all three sources that I began to reconstruct a history of power and politics in each of these towns. And as you were identifying these political actors, how would you describe the power dynamic you were uncovering? The power dynamics varied somewhat by town, but as I discuss in the book, one of the commonalities I found is that there, in each of these towns, in somewhat different ways, there was a unified elite, frequently involving the major employers that I was studying, who had uh, access to controlling borough councils and uh, other aspects of local government, and because they controlled those aspects of local government, also had a disproportionate say as to who was appointed magistrates for the local benches or courts. And who were these laws being acted upon, and how? So the laws themselves, let me take a step back, there were a whole series of laws, uh, and they have a very long history. They start being uh, enacted by Parliament. These are national laws, they're not local laws, way back in the 1720s. And um, these first laws were very specific and applied to particular industries. They were called eventually as a group master and servant laws. And master and servant laws mandated a particular relationship of service between the employer and the employee. 
when we think about being employed in our contemporary context, we think about having what U.S. law calls a contract at will. That is, we're hired uh, and the circumstances are laid out, but if ever we choose to leave work or our employer decides we are unsuitable, that contract can be broken at will. The master and servant laws conceptualize contract quite differently. It was not the kind of contract we now think of. It was specifically mandating a relationship of service. That is, employees were in the service of and had to do the bidding of employers. And therefore, they were more tied to the commands of the employer who had the authority not to release them from work and demand that they engage in the tasks that the employer mandated at the pace that he mandated. But second of all, if an employer found or deems an employee to be not performing work adequately, being disobedient, not fulfilling contract, and a variety of other similar uh, what were called offenses, those employers could criminally prosecute their workers. And the consequences, the fines, the penalties were pretty severe. Uh, the most severe penalty was that a worker could be imprisoned for three months at hard labor uh, by the courts, and after leaving prison, was still bound and obligated to finish out their employment contract of service with their employer. So, big picture, um, what did these laws look like played out in, in many places at once uh, on a large scale? The big picture in England is complicated and varied. As I began to delve into the history of master and servant law, I realized that not all employers and not all industries resorted to master and servant law. Only some did. And part of the puzzle in investigating master and servant law and producing uh, England's great transformation was trying to understand why certain industries and regions of the country resorted to master and servant law and why others didn't. And part of what I think I've come to understand, though there's a great deal work more to be done, is that industries that relied on the classic form of industrial revolution that we often think about, at least in the English and American contexts, factories, machinery, advances in industrialization, could control their workers through the factory labor process and really didn't need to resort to master and servant law so regularly. The consequences of the master and servant law were in those industries that couldn't adopt factories, advanced machinery, and industrialization. And the effects of the master and servant laws were to configure those industries to become reliant on this notion of service. And in some cases for those industries become so reliant that they didn't feel the need to 
think about advances in industrialization and machinery. And when ultimately the factory, the um, master and servant laws were repealed, those industries, which ranged all over the country, found themselves in a disadvantageous position. What is the historical trajectory for these laws? Um, where have you identified uh, the end point to be? Well, the end point is actually a very specific end point. Let me give you sort of the high point of master and servant laws. Mm -hmm. As I said earlier, these laws started to be produced for specific industries in the early part of the 18th century. The first one actually was concerning hat makers, uh, an industry we don't think too much about anymore. Um, but gradually, they encompassed many more industries. And finally, in 1823, an act was passed by Parliament consolidating all of these various specific laws into general laws concerning contracts of service. That means that any in any worker who was exclusively working for a particular employer for any length of time under a contract was subject to the discipline of master and servant laws. So from 1823 on, that meant that the majority of workers in England could be subject to them. It has a very specific endpoint because workers, more specifically, um, growing unions under the uh, banner of the Trade Union Congress uh, objected very vociferously to master and servant law because they saw the law as a way of exploiting their trade union members. And ultimately, many of those workers got the vote in an expansion of voting and citizenship rights in England in the 1870s. And because of that, the trade union movement was able to mobilize sufficient numbers of voters to pressure Parliament to actually repeal the laws in 1875. And at that point, this set of laws, though there were still other laws, ended. If you could expand the scope of this particular project, um, perhaps if you had access to uh, material that maybe does or doesn't exist uh, or no longer exists, uh, what directions would you move in? Uh, what other perspectives would you incorporate? The, the, the book itself really focuses on three cases where master and servant laws were used quite frequently by capitalists or employers. To really be more comprehensive and to get a better grasp of the use of master and servant laws, I obviously, I think, would need to look at those industries, for example, some classic industries in the Industrial Revolution, such as cotton manufacturing, to try to understand more fully the extent to which employers were aware of the laws and made decisions not to use them. It's my hypothesis that they did so because of the factory system, but I have to say that I didn't investigate that systematically. Uh, second, we need to remember that um, England at this point in the Victorian era had a great empire, and not only did they export a lot of the cotton that they were producing, they exported their legal system. Uh, There's some historians who've done a bit of work on this, on a master and servant law in the British Empire. 
And I think it would be actually very useful to do historical analyses, pretty large-scale and long-run analyses about country, countries that eventually um, escaped the, the, the control of the British Empire and became independent nations, and how master and servant law affected class relations, work relations, and industrial development in all sorts of countries around the world. India, for example, Kenya. We could talk about all the far-flung aspects of the British Empire um, because it's clear from a little research that I've been reading that, in fact, master and servant laws were used pretty far into the 20th century in some of these cases. There is a little bit of writing that's been done on Hong Kong, for example, which was a, uh, essentially a colony in the British Empire, and how master and servant laws uh, helped to frame industrial relations in Hong Kong. Finally, I would say, and I talk a little bit about this in the conclusion of the book, that part of the book is to remind us about uh, not just how law was important historically in England in molding labor relations, but how we need to understand law as critical to labor relations in our modern era, and particularly in developing countries and the legal struggles in which workers find themselves engaging to get recognition for their rights. And those rights are very much, and, and what happens in their workplace is very much tied to the legal contexts and under which they labor. That makes a lot of sense. Now, if you could distill one thing you've learned from your research uh, that you'd like other academics in your field to take away, what would that be? Uh, would it be what you've just expressed? Let me answer that in two ways. Part of the book is uh, addressing a series of questions that historians, sociologists, and other social scientists have been writing extensively about for a good 30, 40 years. And uh, that falls under the rubric of what they call the labor process. And the vast majority of historians and sociologists for a long time were working with a particular vision of paradigm where they focused in on aspects of machinery and control over work through the particular way work was accomplished. And at some point a decade or so ago, that kind of analysis reached what I would consider a dead end. And what that research on the labor process uh, did not see, though it accomplished a great deal about how we think about the way work is organized at the work site, is how power relations outside of the work site uh, make a great impact on the way workers are controlled and conflicts arise in the workplace. So part of what I see as my contribution is a way of extending an analysis of power in the workplace. The second thing I would say is I was very interested in this book more generally in thinking about the relationship between class structures and class conflicts and the way in which we find them materialized and pursued in particular institutions. There's a a 
way of thinking, a kind of tradition and approach that in sociology that likes to take a look at how institutions develop in different countries over a very long term and focuses more about the way in which institutions develop rules, regulations, and processes of governance in themselves as a kind of independent process. Likewise, there's a long tradition of understanding class relations and class conflict in terms of employment uh, and overt kind of class and union trade union movements. I think that both of these trajectories and positions have worth, but that fusing them, bringing them together, wetting them, allows institutional analyses to understand more fully how power works on a class dimension, but also how for those people who are very much interested in class structures and class conflict, how class is always mediated, that is in some way shaped by the institutions in which it's realized. Um, if we could step back for a moment and sort of uh, discuss the practical process of writing the book. Um, where did this begin? It began actually in a series of articles. And as with many of the kinds of projects I do, it began with the case studies. That is, uh, as somebody who uh, thinks both sociologically and historically, I develop and elaborate the larger frameworks that I use for analysis by getting my hands dirty in particular cases. And the first case that I looked at that helped me think through all this is the first case study in the book, which is on the pottery industry in northern England. At what point um, in your research uh, did you assess what you have and think, I, ha I have a book here, I have the material for a book? It was after I had done sufficient travel and research in England uh, over a series of years when I realized I had three cases uh, in which I was pretty confident I could engage in a sufficient level of research and detail to be able to make some greater generalizations uh, through these three case studies. Uh, if I hadn't been able to develop those three case studies, I don't think we'd have the book. Thinking about the three separate case studies, how did you spend your time and energy uh, on each of them in this, this long process? Yeah, the, the process is very similar for each of them. It first involved going back to the parliamentary records. And Parliament had uh, a committee that mandated yearly reporting of prosecutions under all major criminal laws in the country by county and by major borough and town. So the first step was to find where there were the highest numbers and levels of prosecutions. The second step was then to go back into the historical literature to find out what were the industries in these towns? 
Who are the people that controlled them? Um, who were the workers? And then the third step was to actually go across the pond and do the historical research, get into the archives. And it was when I finally was able to get into the archives that I was able to gain, to some extent, obviously, a more accurate picture of the principles involved and what they were all about. How much of your research took place uh, in the locations where these case studies took place? I spent many weeks at kind of lousy bed and breakfast, <laughs> uh, particularly in uh, the northern part of the country, uh, in Hull, which is on the northeast coast in Yorkshire, and in Hanley, which is in a in a uh, an area in uh, what the county of what used to be called Staffordshire County, uh, and I was also lucky enough to get a fellowship to be at a center for sociolegal studies at Oxford for a semester, which also became a, a home base, and so. A lot of what I did was riding rails from place to place. <laughs> uh, the Brits uh, famously complain endlessly about their, their transport system and their trains more particularly. But I have <laughs> to say, compared to what I've experienced in the U.S., uh, it was extraordinary. There was a point in my research where uh, when I was at Oxford, I would get up at the crack of dawn, go down to the railway station that was only about a uh, 15-minute bike ride away with my backpack and my trusty PC, hop a 6 a.m. train, get take a two-hour train ride to northern England, to Hanley, for example, to work on the archives uh, to investigate the potteries, uh, spend all day in the archives, hop the train back, uh, take my two-hour trip back, and arrive back in Oxford at oh, 8 or 9 o'clock at night. So it required a little bit of stamina that I probably no longer have. Um, what, what were some of the pleasures of writing a book like this? I get a great deal of pleasure in two ways. First is, I'm not particularly wedded to being part of any one field in a discipline. Uh, in an academic trajectory, I think a lot of people understand that the way you make your name or gain position or distinction is to uh, really connect yourself with a specific kind of field. So, for example, um, I could have connected myself with socio-legal studies, or I could have said that I was interested in principally in employment there's a whole section in sociology that focuses on work and occupations. I like puzzles. And the book to me and the research is really about a quest to solve a puzzle. So I don't really find myself trying to gain position or distinction in any one of these particular fields. What really motivates me in some ways is to work on finding a solution to the puzzle. The second pleasure I get is, in some respects, to 
resurrect, to make alive the particular lives of the people that I study. And there's a certain pleasure in doing that, particularly for the workers, whose lives are often lost in the obscured mists of history. And to be able to bring those people, their travails, their struggles, uh, and occasionally their triumphs to light is also a kind of a pleasure. That's, that's a really beautiful answer. Uh, back to the idea of puzzles, did you have any um, specific moments uh, that you can tell us about uh, where, um, where you could see the puzzle coming together in your research? Yeah, uh, I would say, uh, let me say yes, and I'll answer that, and I'll tell you the moments where I got very frustrated because I couldn't solve the puzzle. Yes. And I think those are equally important. Yes, of course. Um, the, the moments when I saw the study coming together, when I felt that I was getting a grip on the solution to the puzzle, were when I brought back this huge collection of notes uh, that I was that I had taken from all of the various court documents, um, and while you're in the midst of looking through the court documents, it's kind of hard to keep in mind everything that you've been looking at. So, for example, when I was working in Hall with that other fellow across the table from me, uh, those court documents and they're all handwritten in in clerk scrawls, so they're very hard to understand. Each year was contained in what are called folio volumes, that is, bound volumes with blank pages in which the clerks wrote in them. And each volume contained 450 pages. So for each year of Hall court records, I had to page through 900 pages of folio documents. And you sort of get lost as you go through all this, and you really don't know what you've accumulated. But when I could step back and code the data and understand what particular employers were, were most involved in prosecutions and for what, what kind of charges they were bringing, those brought the kind of aha moments where I could really connect an industry to the need for prosecution to maintain, for employers to maintain control in the labor process. And it wasn't until then that I really got a uh, solid sense or feel that I was on the right track. Uh, before then, I felt like I was just sort of groping around in the dark. My frustration, where I didn't have an aha moment, concerned gender. And in the new social history and in sociology, gender is a very central dimension to understanding power relations in the workplace. And I was frustrated in two ways. I actually went into this uh, study thinking that I would find pretty gendered language or discourse for prosecutions of males versus females. And I expected that employers and magistrates would treat male and female employees differently. Uh, and actually prosecute them at different rates because there's a very rich history in that what is what was then called the new social history that documents how uh, gender colored work who was involved in the work 
how they were handled and treated. I was not able to do the kind of gendered analysis that I would want uh, for a couple reasons. One is that as a whole, I want to say about 90% of the prosecutions that I was able to uncover in these case studies were of males. Now, one can speculate about why 90% of the workers were males. Some of it has to do with the kind of industries um, which were either exclusively or disproportionately male. Uh, but there were some industries in which there were female workers as well, and the prosecutions were still disproportionately male. Was it because employers and magistrates thought and treated women differently? I can't find that in the records. It would be a kind of reasonable assumption, but I can't verify it. Uh, second, I thought that in gendered terms, magistrates would discuss defendants in very distinctive ways. And I was disappointed in that magistrates tended to use very gender-neutral language, as did the prosecutors, the employers. The language was very much solely about not fulfilling duties or being disobedient or producing shoddy work. And it didn't seem to me that that language directly spoke to gender dynamics in the workplace. And again, I don't know why that is. Um, it could be because the courts were structured in very particular ways to speak within this legal language, although in other respects, in different types of prosecutions, gender was very much at issue. Um, it could be that the employers, and again, I speculate, were less interested in gendered discipline than in simply getting the most work they could out of whoever they were employing and that gender was not at the forefront of their concerns. Um, I was particularly surprised that when the vast majority, the males, were brought before magistrates, that magistrates didn't talk about their failures as men, that there was actually little to no language about masculinity, about how they, how they should know to be upright upstanding males in the workplace, uh, what was appropriate f to uh, achieve an acceptable and legitimate masculinity, but also how they were failing their roles as fathers and husbands because they were not living up to the expectations of their employer. And I just didn't find any of that, and I wonder why that is. That's interesting. Do you think that in this context, these men were being reduced to their function as workers and being denied um, sort of com more complete personhood? Um, again, I, it would only be speculation on my part. Mm -hmm. One possibility that I explore in the book is that uh, it may well have been that these because the vast majority of prosecutions were men, 
that those expectations were left unstated and assumed. Mm -hmm. That is, they were in the background of these very specific legal proceedings. And if asked of the employers, the magistrates, and even the workers, they would have responded in a gendered language uh, so that those assumptions were operating. They just weren't part of the particular kind of legal discourse that was the center of these prosecutions. That makes sense. Now, earlier, one of the pleasures you described um, was the possibility of, of doing justice to these historical subjects. Uh, would you be able to talk about the relationship between a researcher and historical subjects more generally? Yes, and it's a very difficult one. Um, in a way, history, as I understand it, is about writing stories, uh, narratives. And uh, narratives are laden with all sorts of assumptions about appropriate and inappropriate, good and evil. Narratives have a kind of moral character to them. So part of writing an historical narrative is to always keep in mind the kind of moral character that you're producing in this story for the individuals involved. Uh, and that means both trying to get into the heads of all the participants in different ways, uh, but also having a larger, and this is where I draw on the sociology, framework for understanding power dynamics. Uh, and so it means simultaneously recreating the lives of those individuals as they would see themselves and others around them, but also trying as best one can to get a little distance and think about from a, the perspectives that I used in this book, uh, how we might see those individuals differently than they see themselves. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time uh, so one final question. What are you working on now? I am working on something completely different. Uh, I spent my first couple decades in the academy doing um, this kind of historical work in sociology on 19th century England. I'm now working with an old colleague of mine at a school where I used to teach, uh, Patricia Ewick at Clark University, a sociologist. And we've been doing a participant observation investigation, what's often termed in sociology and ethnography, where you hang out with the people and interview the people uh, that you're interested in researching, of a particular chapter of a national organization called the Voice of the Faithful. The Voice of the Faithful arose actually in the Boston area uh, in response to the 2002 priest sexual abuse crisis. It's composed, uh, certainly in the Boston area and nationally, based on some surveys that have been done, of somewhat older, largely white, largely middle class, and affluent people who understand themselves to be 
faithful Catholics are very much concerned with their church and whose lives are very much centered around their faith. And these individuals mobilized in the wake of the 2002 sexual abuse crisis into these chapters of the organization, Voice of the Faithful, with three specific planks or concerns to support, support survivors, to support priests they called priests of integrity who weren't involved in any of the scandals and engage in something they call structural change, that is, trying to reform the church from the inside. We got very interested in a specific chapter in the Boston area that we called the St. Erasmus Parish Chapter, and we hung out with the people in that particular group for about two and a half years, and we periodically revisit them to try to understand how this particular group of individuals got involved, because in fact very few of them were involved in any other kind of protest or social movement activity in many the many decades of their lives, how they understand themselves as being both challengers to the church hierarchy, but being faithful to Catholicism and deeply faithful. Um, and how they began to transform their self and collective understanding of being members of the Catholic community as they engaged in this challenge to the church hierarchy. That sounds like a fascinating project. And what's really striking about this particular project is that the people who I'm studying talk back. <laughs> um, well, that's very exciting. It is very and exciting. Different. And um, quite different, yes. Well, um, best of luck to you. Thank you. Um, and I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Um, good luck with everything. Thanks. And uh, thanks for anybody who's listened.